to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we look at a pilgrim's attitude. Obviously, as I had mentioned last week, a pilgrim, and from the scriptures, is an individual who realizes that this life is only temporary. Amen? And so no matter what we endure in this life, we have an eternity waiting for us. And I am so excited and happy for that. As our society and as culture and as everything around us begins to decay, I say, I'm ready, Lord. But at the same time, there's still much work to do. And so here, in the mindset of the Apostle Peter, and encouraging those strangers scattered throughout all throughout that region that is listed in verse 1 of chapter 1, here is a reminder about their obligations. A reminder about a proper mindset. It is easy to allow our minds to uh, connect strongly with this world, either in opposition or in joy of this world. Here's a little illustration for you. Uh, specify that your drive-through order is to go. Here, the illustration is how to annoy people. Speak only in a robot voice. Start each meal by conspicuously licking all your food and announce that this is so no one will swipe your grub. Name your dog, Dog. Forget the punchline to a long joke, but assure the listener it was a real hoot. Follow a few paces behind someone, spraying everything they touch with Lysol. Practice making facts and modem noises. Finish all your sentences with the words in accordance with the prophecy. Decline to be seated at a restaurant and simply eat their complimentary mince by the cash register. Repeat everything someone says as a question. Repeat the following conversation a dozen times. Do you hear that? What? Never mind. It's gone now. At the laundromat, use one dryer for each of your socks. Invite lots of people to other people's parties. That's a good way to make some people really agitated, if you think about it. Whether you consider it or not, your attitude and your conduct is an advertisement. We are either advertising for ourselves or we're advertising for Christ. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, let's read this if you have it, follow, follow along with me. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. And this idea of your conversation, particularly verse 12, is what we're looking at this evening. A sour attitude and wrong, uh, wrong attitude or wrong countenance. Wrong as judged by the Bible, not according to what you or I think is wrong, but as judged by the Bible. These are such that they speak of a God who may desire godliness, but does not empower the believer to live out such a life. So what I'm saying there, let me repeat what I said there. A sour attitude. But yet I name the name of Christ, and when circumstances are such that life is difficult, and the ungodly see it, they believe that the God of the Bible is not, is not strong enough to empower me to live out what the Bible says I should be living out. Now David's sin with Bathsheba, I want you to look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. We will come back and deal here in 1, Samuel, or in 1 Peter. This is my introduction here, but 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, the greatest indictment against David for his sin with Bathsheba. 
And we have to understand that as believers, if our conversation, and I'll explain that here shortly, but in short, that is your conduct, your countenance, your attitude of life. If my conversation is not advertising for Christ, and particularly what the actions of David did in killing Uriah the Hittite, it's a very egregious sin. And what that sin did, and here in 2 Samuel 12, 14, follow along with me as I read just this one verse, Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born in thee shall surely die. How many pastors and people in ministry do you see that fall into immorality, they fall into uh, financial scandals, and you know what, the world loves it? They jump all over it because it's, see, see, Christianity is a sham, according to, their, according to their narrative. The believers receiving this divinely inspired letter are being persecuted, and some are seriously running for their lives, facing great adversity. They have an extremely wicked and hostile government and culture to the cause of Christ. But the Spirit of God understands this, and He sends this epistle to remind them, don't abandon living for Christ. As you think about your life and how you interact with the lost world, how do your actions evidence that you are a believer in Christ? Now, these believers would lose their jobs, they would lose their lives, they would lose their lands, all sorts of things would be stolen and taken from them by the very virtue that they name the name of Christ. On social media and the things you like or dislike or comment, how do these comments evidence a conversation that I am advertising as I am a devoted believer of Jesus Christ? And I ask myself that same question. Here's the principle this evening. Consider your conduct or your lifestyle as that which positively advertises or negatively advertises for Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this evening, and Lord, I thank you for this message, a timely message, Lord, to remind us that we must not forget that if we name the name of Christ, that there is a lost world that understands by their very conscience what that insinuates. Father, I pray that we would not, as David did, in bringing reproach and blasphemy upon your name because of his evil actions. God, it is a hurtful thing to think about taking the name of Christ and slinging it through the mud because I, as a professing believer, live in a way that is inconsistent with being a Christian. Father, I pray that we would have an honest conversation. We'd have a life that advertises that Jesus is the answer. And so, Lord, everything that I say, Lord, may you be glorified. I need your help. 
challenge and stir our hearts to be conformed to thy image. I love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. I want to look at the attachment. And the attachment, as I had spoken about a little bit of review from last week in verse 11, dearly beloved, there's an attachment. That is a distinction. In fact, the word there, beloved, is that we've heard, maybe you've heard if you've been around churches any time, there's three types of love in the Bible. There's eros, which is kind of a, uh, like you would, guys, you know, looking at dirty magazines. I mean, there's a, uh, that kind of love. There's a phileo love, a friendship love, and then there is an agape love, uh, the love of Jesus Christ, an unconditional love. And the, to the beloved, the agape toy, uh, there in the noun usage, but we find here it's a distinction of who we are as believers. There's an exhortation, I beseech you, an adamant plea that his understanding is to call to be at one side. He's saying, listen, listen up. I've got an important message for you. And the Bible always gives us an admonition to the surrender and the death of myself. He says there, then he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, that is our status here on earth. I'm not a citizen of this world, I'm a citizen of heaven. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'm no longer a citizen of this world, I'm a citizen of heaven. Now I understand we do have our physical idea of being a citizen here in Canada and all for, so forth on that, and, and I'm thankful for that. But ultimately, my eternal citizenship, it lies in heaven. I'm only passing through this on a journey to the day I get to stand before and see my Savior. And as I do that, he's saying, on your journey, abstain from fleshly lusts. He says, resist ungodly passions. But he says, not only does he say abstain, he says they war against the soul. And I dealt with this last week. I mean, there is a war for your soul's diligence to follow God. I mean, even this afternoon, I was doing something and my phone started deleting things. And I was like, ah. So I had to totally wipe my phone, start all over. You know, I was just like, I wasn't getting calls and other things weren't happening. I wiped the phone. I said, I'm going to start over and hopefully it works now. You know, I was a little frustrated. I was like, ah, oh, you know. And there's other little things that tend to come up and technical things here and here. And I was trying to do a video. We had to do a video for a particular church. And I was doing it on my phone and the audio wasn't working. And I was like, oh, okay, I think this phone's possessed. But I, sometimes I, I'm pretty sure technology is. But, you know, there's a... <clears throat> there's an inclination towards frustration with it. But I have to come back to the realization about who I'm around. And, he, and the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, listen, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. And if it's only a personal thing, you're thinking, okay, well, you know, I didn't do so well today. It's, it's okay, you know, ah, just a personal thing. And I'm just passing through this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he says something to give us a reminder why. Because if you name the name of Christ, you are a leader of leading others to point to Christ. You're a leader for Christ. I mean, you are leading people from their position, hopefully, Lord willing, 
to look at God or you're leading them to not look at God. The attitude, the conversation here, this word conversation by its definition is conduct expressed according to certain principles, way of life, conduct, or behavior. Now a note here, too many Christians are not concerned about their life and whether it is pointing people to Jesus Christ. They are consumed with this life as a result of being a resident of this earth and not a stranger or pilgrim. And just because we will never be perfect, it does not mean that we should not be concerned about our lifestyle. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And every man that striveth for the, what does it say here? Mastery is temperate. The idea of temperate is having your body under control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. He's talking about kind of like an Olympian. They do it for, literally, they don't want to stand on the podium and they want to wear a little medallion. That's what they do it for. I mean, any athlete today, all their, they do all the hundreds, thousands of hours of work, hundreds, thousands of dollars to stand on a podium and be recognized as something of excellence before a large congregation population for a large group of people but you know what in a couple years people are like well who won that unless you're an avid sports enthusiast you're not going to remember who stood on that podium they're receiving something that's corruptible it's going to stand on their shelves it's going to collect dust oh remember the days when i was the best pole vaulter or whatever it is but you and i are striving for mastery in something that is incorruptible. You know what? It's not going to be forgotten. It's not going to dust away. It's not going to go into oblivion when an Olympian dies. How many Olympians have won the, the gold, the silver, the bronze? Thousands of them through the years. Hundreds at least. We are living in a day of apathy. The acceptable fashion is clothing, which looks as though it's been, you know, oftentimes we see today, and I don't understand this, this clothing that has all these holes in it. I don't get it. I mean, there's no idea of excellence in fashion. There's no idea of excellence for the Lord. There's no idea of excellence even for yourself, at least. I mean, sometimes the music today, if you go into a store or uh, you, you go into this place and it's saying, this is art. I mean, it literally looks like someone went to the paint shop, took a can, shook it all up, put a whole bunch of cans, and threw it against the thing. I mean, it, some of it just looks silly. I mean, there are some paintings that are very beautiful. Philosophy and psychology are apt to think that we're a product of our environment, and we will only be what our parents were. You'll never rise above where your parents were. That's silly. And the sad part is that churches, instead of being a light... We have become a magnet for the filth and the stench of the culture in an effort to draw the crowds. 
I mean, you go into some of these churches today, they look more like a nightclub than God's club. I was reading through something, I was reading, I'm reading in this book called Leadership as an Identity by Crawford Loritz, and there's, he would be an even, neo-evangelical, but uh, he has some very good information here in regards to, he says, the, in regards to some leadership ideas. He says, the word secular comes from the Latin meaning non-sacred. To be secular means you don't believe God is foundational. He is not at the center. It doesn't necessarily mean you are an atheist or agnostic. It just means that God is pushed out to the edges of consideration and day-to-day operations are done from priorities and philosophies that reflect a human-centered agenda rather than a God-centered one. And I have to say, that's a pretty, if you look at that definition, that's a pretty strong indictment against us as believers. How do we live our day-to-day lives? When I'm pushing out the door in the day, I'm thinking, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Rather than God, here's some things I've got to do today. I need your wisdom and help for it. We start our days, and some believers go even, you know, many believers go out their day and they don't even spend some time in the Word. They're living a secular life. They name the name of Christ, but they're secular because God is on the edges. God's only at the forefront of their life when life is bad. A little illustration for you. For clergymen met for a friendly gathering. During the conversation, one of the clergymen said, our people come to us and pour their hearts, confessing certain sins and needs. Let's do the same. This, in fact, was priest, but I would not advocate for that. And this priest says, confession is good for the soul. In due time, all agreed. One confessed he liked to go to the movies and would sneak off when away from his church. The second confessed to smoking cigars, and the third one confessed to playing cards. When it came to the fourth, he wouldn't confess. The others pressed him, saying, Come now, we confessed ours. What is your secret or vice? Finally, he answered, It is gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. All of those men, in fact, the whole Roman Catholic system is a, is a religion out of hell, sending people there quickly. We live our lives with this idea of secular. I mean, our conversation, our speech is not ordered by God. And, I, and I'm speaking to myself on this as well. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, having your conversation, it gives a word here, honest. This is of a moral quality that is good, noble, or praiseworthy. Beautiful by reason of purity of heart and life. Praise, praiseworthy. Morally good. Noble. In Matthew 5.16, this word here, honest, is also translated as good in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works or your honest works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. He says, listen, you need to have a good conversation. You need to have a morally upright, noble, godly conduct of life. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. 
Now, when you think about this idea of a good conversation, I've spoken about beloved. There's, and when you're a beloved, you're distinct from all else. When, you're, when he's saying dearly beloved, he's talking to believers. Those who are the children of God. They're distinct from all else. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. He says, former conversation. If an individual names the name of Christ, and I said, when you accepted Christ, how was your life different? Well, it's not really any different, it's just the same. I would have to say, you have to have, there ought to be a difference from after salvation to before. I mean, there's a difference. Before and after salvation, there should be a difference. Now, it's not necessarily just because before salvation and after salvation, uh, there may necessarily be, you know, well, I got saved yesterday. Wow, I'm like, everything's changed. I'm not saying that all your vices and everything are gone, but I am saying there ought to be a difference in how you think about life. And as you go, if you maintain those lifestyles that are not consistent with godliness, you, it will bother you. Do you realize in Galatians 1.13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, Listen, you guys heard of my lifestyle, my conversation in the past when I, when I was a Jewish uh, Pharisee. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He says the church of Jerusalem, beyond measure I persecuted it. When Paul was lost, he was antagonistic to God's ways. When he came face to face with Jesus, though, it changed him. Christian, when I accept Jesus Christ, I ought to be different. I cannot maintain a lifestyle uh, for myself and it not bother me. If I live for myself and my conversations, I live a secular lifestyle. As I said, secular is putting God just on the edges of my life. He doesn't dictate all that I do. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So this involves our language. Everything we say ought to reflect the one in whom we believe. It involves our lifestyle. It involves our love or our charity, as this 1 Timothy 4.12 speaks. And it ought to manifest itself in our giving of ourselves to others. How are you serving other people for Christ? It involves our spirit, our attitude. It involves our trust in God, trusting Him for every need. And the last thing in 1 Timothy 4.12, in purity, it involves our total life to be pure. Go with me, if you're there in 1 Peter, look with me back at chapter 1, verse uh, 15 and 18. 
It says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 18. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. He says there's a corruptible, a vain conversation. There was a time I was at a church, we were at this particular church, and it was, it was a Calvinist church, reformed in tradition, it had the name Baptist, but it wasn't Baptist. And um, there was a lot of things we went through, I mean, it was just, I went to a, I've also, you know, I went, I went to, when I was in Seattle, I went to, you name it, I probably went to that type of church. And uh, I, I remember going into this one uh, Lutheran church, and it was sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, say this, st- you know, sit. I, it was just all this liturgical stuff. Why am I doing it? Well, that's because that's what we've always done. There's a vain conversation. God calls us to be holy. You want to know something else that God tells us? Hebrews 13.7. Look with me here at Hebrews 13.7. This verse is a judging of a pastor and those in leadership of the gravity of our actions. It says, remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. The Bible tells us to follow the lifestyle of godly leadership. The Bible also tells us here, if you think about this, just several verses here and looking at conversation, but following the lifestyle. God's saying, listen, if you're, you're a leader and you're giving out God's word, people are following you. If you're naming the name of Christ in your workplace, people are following you. In James 3.13, it says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. The Bible says you ought to have a conversation that is meek and wise. What is a meek and wise lifestyle? It is a lifestyle that I might be disrespected You might disrespect me, but it doesn't matter because as long as I'm doing what God wants me to do, I will continue to serve Him. What other people think about me, it doesn't matter. When you're treated like a servant, you just say, I'm doing what Jesus called me to do. And you're living in the wisdom of God. I want you to look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. This is a believer that goes, potentially goes to work, sits among family as they tell dirty jokes, they talk about filth, and you just sit along right with it. It's going to affect you. 
It's going to grieve your soul. I remember back in high school, I, I would go to church, and then I would, sometimes I'd go to a party with a buddy of mine. Man, did it ever bother my spirit. It grieved me, and I didn't quite understand all of those things, but I just knew I shouldn't be here. And it bothered me. Your conversation affects those for or against the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. He's saying, wives, if you have a husband that does not know Christ, and you live for Christ, your godliness may win him to Christ. Look with me at 2 Peter 3.11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in what? All. Holy conversation and godliness. <laughs> if we're not concerned with all matters of our life, I won't have a holy conduct and live in godliness. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. How many of you like to have people ridicule you? How many of you like to be disliked by others? In verse 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. What does this say? God is concerned with your conduct, your entire life, your entire testimony, not just at church. It's not get out of that car, come in here, put on the smiley face, everything's good. No, God says, I'm concerned with every part of your life. Just because you may live your life in a manner that is pleasing, your God, uh, pleasing to God, your life will be a witness against the wickedness of man. And your lifestyle in holiness, it will not always be liked by an evil and adulterous generation. You will shine a light on the evil around you and others will be frustrated because you will be showing that Jesus is the only way. And you're showing that they are accountable before God and they don't like that accountability. You may not even say anything. This attack can sometimes be very rude with words. Instead of accounting this attack against you as, as being against me, I ought to take it as an encouragement that I am doing God's will and they are in fact attacking God because they don't want God. Now just make sure that your, your attitude is not hostile. A man went to a barber shop to have his hair and his beard cut as always. He started to have a good conversation with the barber who attended him. They talked about many things and various subjects. Suddenly they began to talk about God. The barber said, look man, I don't believe that God exists as you say. Why do you say that? Asked the client, well, it's easy. 
You just have to go into the street to realize that God does not exist. Oh, tell me, if God exists, if God existed, would there be so many sick people? Would there be abandoned children? If God existed, there would be no suffering or pain. I can't think of a loving God who permits all of these things. The client stopped for a moment thinking, but he didn't want to respond so as to cause an argument. The barber finished his job and the client went out of the shop. Just after he left the barber shop, he saw a man in the street with a long hair and beard. He again entered the barber shop and he said to the barber, You know what? Barbers do not exist. How can you say they don't exist? asked the barber. I'm here and I'm a barber. No, the client exclaimed, they don't exist. Because if they did here, would, there would be no people with long hair and a beard like that man who walks in the street. Ah, barbers do exist. What happens is that people do not come to them. Exactly, affirmed the client. That's the point. God does exist. What happens is people don't go to him, don't look for him. That's why there's so much pain and suffering in this world, end quotes. Christian, you're the advertisement for people to come to Christ. We do many things to not hurt a business. Uh, we'll do, you know, if you represent a company where you work as an auxiliary firefighter, we can't put our uniforms on outside of work uh, because we're representing the city. They don't want you to have, bring a bad name upon the city employees. And they're concerned of their employees bringing bad reputation upon the city. But how often are we as believers interested and concerned with hurting the image of Christ by our ungodly lifestyle or our words we speak? What about hurting others from listening to the gospel because of a sour countenance? The wisdom of silence, an illustration here in one of Aesop's fables, a donkey walking through the woods finds the skin of a lion. Hunters had killed the lion and left the skin to dry in the sun. The donkey put on the lion's skin and was delighted to discover that all the other animals were terrified of him. And ran away when he appeared. Rejoicing in his newfound respect, the donkey bray, brayed, brayed his happiness, only to give himself away by his voice. The moral of the fable was clear. Fine clothes may disguise, but silly words will disclose a fool. In our day of social broadcasting, it seems that anyone can become famous by disclosing every embarrassing part of his life to the world on television or the internet. Yet what is truly gained by such entertainment, people may sit at home and laugh at the folly of those who hold nothing back, but they are diminished in the process. This produces a corrosive effect because it encourages people to share more and more when they have less and less to offer. We have an epidemic of people sharing opinions without regard to whether or not they have anything meaningful to say. Someone said, the problem today is that those who know the least know it the loudest. Indeed, much of what is promoted as wisdom is actually anything but. It is the worst of foolishness displayed publicly. Maybe you've heard the old saying, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. Almost all of us could stand to listen more and talk less. Rather than being compelled to tell everyone we meet everything, uh, we can fit into the length of a conversation, we should remember that one of the best, wisdom's best qualities is the ability to hold the tongue. Let your conversation be honest amongst the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when you, when you have an honest conversation, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, you can guarantee it, they're going to speak against you. They're going to come after you, sometimes on totally baseless charges. I don't want to give anything 
that would give credibility to what they have to say. Because my words, in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I don't want to advertise for the world that God is not worth it. Because I'm living a life that is not consistent. You know what? They did this to Jesus. I mean, Jesus said it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called uh, the master of the house Beelzebub, which they call Jesus, you know, the house of Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? They did it to his disciples. When they shall separate you from their company, shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil. They did it to Paul. The Bible tells us, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying like, come and get me! No, no way, Jose, I hate it. I hate people. I, being angry at me, I mean, I hate people, but I, the conclusion of that sentence is I hate people being mad at me. I don't like having people mad at me. I really, it bothers me. And I want to, like, how can I make it right? You know, even the perception of it, I don't like it. But the Bible tells us here in the latter portion of verse 12, whereas they speak against those evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. It might very well come, as you think about the thief on the cross, the two thieves and one of the Gospels, they were both reviling him. But in Luke, it tells us that one of the thieves, that this man is innocent. It was after some time of reviling Jesus, I'm, it seems that one of them came to the recognition that Jesus was who he said he was. He put his faith in Christ, and he went to paradise that day. What if, at work, you take the ridicule from your co-workers, and you take it with grace and godliness. It's a hard thing when someone comes and treats you like a servant, and then they have something horrible happen in their life, and you come up to them and say, I'm so sorry, can I pray for you? You know, their jaw drops. Uh... Why are you nice to me? I've been a jerk to you. Christian, we have got to begin to see, I'm just a stranger. I'm just a pilgrim. All I do as a child of God is to want to point people to Christ. It's easy to do in church, or think about in church. In this day of visitation, you know, someday your example, I want to read a little, before I talk about the day of visitation, a little quote here by David Sorensen. He said, thus, even though the world may be critical of us as Christians, nevertheless, by our honest and pure living, they will eventually, will someday glorify God. They could say that I was, you know, in this workplace, I saw this person 
I saw Chris here, and I noticed that he didn't change his behavior, or if he messed up, he confessed up, he asked for forgiveness, he made it right, no matter if the other person made it right or not, and he honored God. What is going to be the testimony of our lives if we are we having honest conversation? I mean, the world thinks about it. I mean, they talk, oh, Christians, they just all squabble and fight and conflict and blah, blah, blah. I mean, and we give a lot of fodder for that. In the day of visitation, and that is the day by which all of us will stand before God as believers at the judgment seat of Christ, as the unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. And God looks in and searches out ways, deeds, character of men, and he will, there's an investigation. A little commentary on this there, it referred essentially to God's judgment upon Israel. The word translated as visitation refers to investigation, inspection, and by extension, judgment. Parent thought is of the coming day of judgment, possibly at Christ's return. End quote. Realize in Luke 19.44 that Israel was destroyed for not knowing Christ, the Lord, and that the king had visited them as their Messiah. And you think about this as a visitation. Look with me at Luke 19.44 as it talks about visitation. I just want to do these couple brief verses and then we'll bring it to a close this evening. Luke chapter 19, verse 44. Luke 19, 44, it says, And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. Now this is talking about Jesus Christ. They didn't know that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, was among them. And he's saying, listen, this temple will be destroyed completely. And it would be in the year 70 A.D. And then in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not uh, be ashamed before him at his coming. As we think about this, not on the visitation, but the fact is being ashamed at Jesus at his coming. The question this evening, in conclusion, Christian, do you concentrate on having a mind that is continually inspecting your words and actions to determine if they are commensurate with your testimony for Christ? Several questions. Are you known as a gossiper? Are you known as being grumpy? Are you known for being arrogant? All of these questions and the evil attitudes are indicative of a person whose life is as a dweller of the earth and not a pilgrim on their way to heaven. We must get back on the ship for Christ and be a light for Christ that we were called to be. Final illustration and I'll be done. On January 13, 2012, the massive Costa Concordia cruise ship with more than 4,200 passengers and crew on board was sailing off the coast of Italy on a tour of the Mediterranean Sea. The captain deviated from his planned course and the ship struck a reef near the shore. After taking on water for a while, the ship began to sink. Abandoning his duties to the passengers and crew, Captain Francesco Chettino left the ship instead of remaining to make sure everyone could be rescued. In a phone conversation, the local Coast Guard commander repeatedly, pre uh, repeatedly pressed Chatino for an update on the situation. Tell me if there are women, children, and people in need there. 
Failing to receive a satisfactory reply, he ordered Shatino to return to the ship. The captain responded, you realize it's dark and we can't see anything. You've been telling me that for an hour. Now get back on board, the Coast Guard official shouted. The captain was later arrested for his failure to do his duty, resulting in the deaths of more than 30 people. Every day we are surrounded by people who will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. The fact that so many are lost should disturb us. The Bible tells us that Jesus cared about the people a great deal. Matthew 9, 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Let our hearts be stirred by the condition of the lost and do everything we can to win others to Christ, to include having a right conversation around them. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 again, and I will be done. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain... Uh, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what, if I have no attachment to this world, they can speak evil of me. And I have to say, that's a struggle. They can speak evil of me because I have no attachment to this world. But if I'm attached to this world and what people think about me and not what Christ thinks of me, it's going to be a battle. We need to have a lifestyle that is pointing people to Christ by our words and everything we do. We must get an eternal focus not a temporal fix for now. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening, if I could have Mrs. Pat come forward, please. As you think about this, I want to ask you, what is your pilgrim attitude like? How are your words, your thoughts, your actions towards those that may be unsavory towards you? If Jesus dealt as we deal with people, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. I'm thankful his focus was eternal and not for the here and now. May we have such a focus and honest conversation amongst the Gentiles that God will get the glory. As the music plays and as you do business with God about your life, just some questions to ask yourself. How are you doing? How does your conduct, your words, your speech, your social media presence, how does that bring glory to God? The Bible calls us everything we do is to be for God's glory. Not about lifting me up, but lifting him up. First question tonight is Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you died right now, could you give me a Bible reason why you know you're on your way to heaven? Why you know that Jesus is your Savior? Can you give me a Bible reason? 
I'm not talking you just went through some motion, but I'm saying you have a viable reason. If you know Christ, you say, Pastor, I know for sure. And I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself that simple question. Am I having an honest conversation amongst the lost? Just a moment longer as this stanza goes through one more time. How are you doing in having a pilgrim's attitude? this evening. I thank you for the challenge from your word. Father, it sure is a challenge. God, you're so good. Father, help me to stop looking at myself. I pray that for all of us. God, I would just realize I'm just a stranger. I'm a pilgrim. And God, it's easy to say. A whole lot harder to live out. I may be continually inspecting my words, my attitude, my countenance around those to whom I minister and to whom we influence for Christ or against Christ. That, Lord, we would have a life that is pleasing to Thee. Lord, I yield all of this to You. And God, may we truly be pleasing to Thee. I love You, Lord Jesus. In Your precious name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you.